Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. I'm Taylor, and with me as always is Tanner. Tanner, how you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm pretty good. And, uh, and you know what? I think we should probably thank some new patrons to start the show today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Andrea and Samantha, who have both signed up. We are very appreciative of that. Thank you so much for supporting us. We hope you uh, continue to enjoy listening and enjoy the bonus content. It's very cool. Thank you for the support. We we really do genuinely appreciate it. Other than that, let's talk about uh, those weekly media check-ins. Uh, for me, I've been uh, kind of gone down the rabbit hole of college baseball, which I realize to some of our international listeners, yeah, it's really weird that like in America, we love college sports so much. And it's a really big deal. My team of choice is East Carolina. Go Pirates. Kind of from the part of the country that I'm originally from. Uh, they need to win today against Texas to go to the uh, College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska. So that's exciting. It's a win or go home game today. So that's what I'll be doing at four o'clock this afternoon. College baseball, the winner gets to go to Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, it's like the only time anyone's wanted to go to Nebraska. No, no one else, you know. No reason otherwise to really want to go there. I don't know. It's fun. I'm not like a super fan for college baseball, but when it gets like this, it's it's always fun. It's fun to see a school that I care about do well, especially against a big school like Texas. I mean, Texas is one of the most uh, notable, richest, most powerful schools in uh, in America. They've torn apart conferences left and right multiple times to you know to try to be at the top of their uh, game. But uh, anyway. It's a big horns down to Texas. And unlike, you know, what they've done to Oklahoma, the Big 12 can't find me for saying that. I think, honestly, the ECU Pirates could probably take a game out of a series from the Brewers right now. <laughs> they could certainly beat the Reds. So. I think they're on like an eight or nine game slide right now. So Just coming down to the bottom with the Reds. <laughs> yeah. What about you? What have you been up to? Uh, I watched a movie. Okay. Movies are good. I've mentioned this before, but, you know, I watch like four or five new movies a year, probably, um, <laughs> that are new to me. Mm-hmm. This time, an Australian movie called Wake in Fright. Okay. That I originally heard about via the Australian Gothic podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, so shout out to Lucas and Josie for sharing that and discussing. So I, I thought it looked really cool. So Katie and I watched Wake in Fright a few nights ago, and then I, I subsequently listened to the the Australian Gothic episode about it. Really just a fascinatingly scary movie. Is it a horror movie? Suspense? What are we dealing with? I've seen it described as a horror movie. And I I guess not being like a huge film person, I, I guess I could only call it that in the most like tangential sort of psychological horror way. Mm-hmm. It's very much a film about how terrifying people can be just mm-hmm. sort of doing the things that they always do. Interesting. It's sort of a, one of the phrases that I, I've heard, you know, it being discussed with a lot of it is about aggressive hospitality. Okay. So the main character is a teacher and he he ends up stuck in this really, really small town in Australia. And it's he he's not really used to dealing with, you know, these like small town locals. You know, he has to just deal with a lot of the cultural things that he experiences are really terrifying because of, you know, how how close and how possible they seem, you know, no, no one's doing anything that they would perceive as aggressive to him. Mm-hmm. They're doing things that they would always do. This is just how life is. 
And it's just a horrifying experience um, just seeing some of the real gritty brutality of everyday life right that is perfectly normal to to the the people and and the the movie really makes you sort of assess and think about like well why is this so off-putting why is this so Mm -hmm. scary to me because again like there's no there's no bad guy in the movie there's no um there's definitely like conflict in place um and there's characters that like cause tension but again not for any not for anything that they would see as you know a nefarious purpose it's a really like strange hard movie to describe kind of i feel like if i described the plot it would sound really boring <laughs> but it was a great movie definitely worth watching i guess i'm kind of thinking like, does it have like a get out quality to it i guess i've never seen get out i only kind of know the the gist of it mm-hmm. and and i guess i could say maybe s- same kind of idea of being yeah. stuck somewhere that, that you don't want to be <laughs> yeah i mean i i guess on that on that level yes but definitely a cool movie. Um, there's cool. a cool story behind it. Um, it was kind of almost lost forever, at least in its like full cut. And then it was sort of rediscovered and has made a comeback. It wasn't popular in Australia when it came out. It was kind of detested, actually, just for the way it, it sort of portrayed everyday life in Australia. But it I, it seems like it sort of made like a like a cult comeback, I guess. Nice. I don't know if you want to know more, listen to Australian Gothics episode. I think it's their third episode that's about Wake and Fright. It's like second or third. And yeah, check it out. Uh, it's definitely worth watching. It's not too long. It's definitely, uh, it'll definitely keep your attention. Nice. Also, as a as a warning, you know how in movies and like TV shows at the end where it gives you a warning that says no animals were harmed in the making of this? Uh-huh. If that's a big thing for you then there's a kangaroo hunt segment that you will want to skip <laughs> because that is not the case in the movie Wake and Fright. <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> All right. Well, with that stuff out of the way, I suppose it's time to talk about some shipwrecks. All right. Let's do it. Let's talk about the Myron. I feel like I've wanted to do this episode so many times. I've put it in polls. I've put it up to the people, and we've never done it. So fortunately, as one of the co-dictators of this podcast, the time is now. The Myron Revolution has begun, and we'll talk about the Myron today. Is it named after famed Steelers radio personality Myron Cope? Uh, He may have been named after it since it was built in 1888 by the Mechanics Dry Dock Company in Grand Haven, Michigan. I'll give that a yoy. <laughs> so she was originally named the Mark Hopkins. I kept wanting to say Mark Hopkins. I was about to ask, is that like the basis <laughs> from Blake 182? Uh, and it's actually named after the son of the original owner, which his name is Captain Harris Baker. Uh, she would be renamed the Myron in 1902. She's 186 feet long, 32 and a half foot beam, has a 13 foot draft. In total, she would carry a crew of 18. Now, first, before we get too far into this, we have to kind of talk about what type of vessel she was. She's something that's fairly unique to the Great Lakes. She is what is known as a lumber hooker. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Lumber hookers were unique to the Great Lakes. They were designed to carry a load of wood or timber um, in addition, they would carry to their deck load that they would carry. They were also designed to tow one or two barges behind them that were also fully loaded with wood. So it seems like in that capacity, you know, hauling wood, hauling timber, it seems like you would get pretty dirty. Yes. 
Yes. Dirty lumber hookers. A lot of sap. Sticky. Little full. A lot of sap. <laughs> they're not the fastest or most elegant vessels. Uh, they're they're powerful. They're designed with practicality in mind. They're meant to carry large amounts of wood. The barges were often old schooners that were stripped of their masts. So this is like a good way to repurpose something that they have a lot of in the Great Lakes area. And you've had this transition to you know, steam-powered ships and things like that. You're getting away from the schooners. But as we know, these Great Lake vessels last forever. The Arthur M. Anderson is still cruising around the Great Lakes today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have all these schooners, you know, you, you take the mass off of it, and then you're just left with a massive amount of space that you can load with timber and stuff like that. Unless you have prisoners from your colonial empire that you yes. want to put in there, and then you can make a prison hulk. Yeah, instead of creating prison ships in America, we decided to just transport lumber. We, we we made that choice. So we have, we have more than enough prisons. Yeah, we have enough prisons on land here. We don't need to have floating prisons. Although we do have one. <laughs> so yeah, this is just a good way for them to repurpose older and out-of-date vessels, essentially. It's kind of noted in a lot of the reading that I did that this is particularly common in the Georgian Bay area. But that's not where this story is taking place. But that area uh, was apparently lousy with lumber hookers. Just rife with them. Yes. It's the red light district of the Great Lakes. The Redwood District. Um, <laughs> also, for anyone unfamiliar, I guess, or vaguely familiar with the Great Lakes um, geography, when you look at them, I almost said when you look at them from above, I think that's the only way that you can look at all of them. Georgian Bay is that like, it's almost like another lake. It's that kind of lobe off like the northeast of Lake Huron. It's very large in itself, but it's just kind of a a big chunk of Lake Huron. Also, let's be honest, as Americans, like we don't really think about that part of the Great Lakes. Not really. Yeah. Just a mystery. We don't know what happens there. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the history of the Myron. Uh, In total, the Myron has been 31 years on the Great Lakes. During that time, she had a few notable incidents. On the 27th of September, 1895, while still named the Mark Hopkins, she was sunk by the Vanderbilt near Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And this is back in the day when like, we didn't just let something like sit there. You, you had to repurpose this thing, right? Mm-hmm. She would be raised in 1895 and rebuilt in Marine City, Michigan in 1896. In 1901, she would again find herself in trouble. This time she was grounded on Long Point, Ontario uh, on Lake Erie. And she would again be rebuilt in 1904 in Bay City, Michigan. So you can see, like, these things are a little more valuable. They're not disposable. Like, you're you're rebuilding this thing multiple times because it's important to the business. Mm-hmm. At the time of her loss, the Myron was operated by O.W. Blodgett Lumber Company. <laughs> that just sounds like a made up. It sounds like something from, like, a series of unfortunate events or something yes. like that. <laughs> this company was owned by John W. Blodgett who was a notable civic leader, businessman, and president of the National Lumber Manufacturers Association. Can I just say that John Blodgett sounds like a minced oath that you would use when you stub your toe and you're near children. John Blodgett! It does too, doesn't it? Uh, Amongst his many notable achievements were consolidating banks during the Great Depression, establishing a hospital and clinic for infant feeding and establishing an association for the blind. So what you can see here, we're still in that age of like kind of civic responsibility by the ultra rich. I mean, this guy is probably, 
This guy's probably regionally rich. Like, let's be honest, this isn't Andrew Carnegie. But this guy for the area has a lot of money, and he's choosing to do good with it. He's choosing mm-hmm. to invest in his communities. He's saving infants. He's helping mm-hmm. blind people. Um, and even the consolidation of the banks, he's actually doing that because at this time, there's no federal protection on these banks. Mm-hmm. So if that bank goes under, you just lose your money. It's like a Bitcoin scam. Exactly. Banks were Bitcoin back then. Um, But if he keeps buying these banks, he can consolidate them and keep them solvent, which means you don't lose your house, you don't lose your savings. Mm -hmm. So it's actually as, you know, nowadays, that would probably sound bad, someone buying up all the banks. But at the time, he's actually helping people stay in their homes. So overall, he's, um, he's a rich guy choosing to do good. And presumably after he did that, he stayed rich, correct? He helped people. He was still rich. Probably still had more than enough money, I'm assuming. He did. So as we can see, the Blodgetts were a very wealthy family, a very influential family, but they also seem to have an eye towards community development. So that's cool. It's cool to see someone be successful, but also invest in their local communities and, you know, do good for other people. Oh, yeah, for sure. I feel like that's I'm, I'm sure there's people doing that today that maybe don't get as many headlines. But I feel like when we think of the ultra rich today, it's very much a. I got mine situation. Yeah, exactly. So now that we talked about some happy things, let's talk about some less than happy things. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about what happened to the Myron. All right. On November 22nd, 1919, the Myron departed Munising, Michigan for Buffalo, New York. And with her is the barge Miztech. So she's towing that with her. That's that schooner situation like we've been talking about. Miztech is another vessel that's owned by the Blodgett Company. She's 194 feet long, and she was built as a three-masted schooner in 1890 in Marine City, Michigan. Both vessels are loaded to capacity with lumber, and the Myron has a crew of 18, while the Miztech only has seven men aboard. So, you know, you still have to have people on board there, make sure everything's good, you know, things like that. You still have to man that barge. Yeah, if if we think back to like our episodes about the Great Storm of 1913, you've got situations where barges are getting, you know, cut loose. Oh, we'll get there. And the people on board are like, hey, uh, see you later. Yep. That's a, that'll be a similar situation. <laughs> so after about two hours after their departure, a strong November gale begins to pick up. Stop me if you've heard this story before. Winds would blow hard at about 60 miles per hour. Temperatures would begin to drop and heavy snow begins to fall. So this gets bad really quick. Mm-hmm. Like this is one of those scenarios where in modern times, you probably wouldn't have gone out in this because you'd known it was coming. Right. But uh, at this time, you know, it's it's more of a guess. Uh, soon, massive waves begin to open up scenes in the wooden hull of the Myron. Pumps are deployed. However, they're no match for the inflow of water. I forgot that the ship is made of wood. Yes, it is made of wood. In addition to these issues, ice buildup quickly becomes a concern. If you've seen Deadliest Catch or something like that, I'm sure we've talked about it as well. The problem with ice isn't necessarily like it makes the vessel heavier. It's how it makes the vessel Mm -hmm. heavier. It changes that center of balance. It changes like where the center of gravity is on the vessel. The vessel becomes much more top heavy. Mm Mm-hmm. So this makes her more susceptible to the wind and wave action that's going on. It also slows her down. So soon she's only able to make between three and four knots, and the ice begins to weigh her down even more. So it's that classic scenario. It's it's no different than the Alfaro or something like that, where once you lose headway in a storm, you're at the mercy of the storm. Mm -hmm. It was at this point that Captain Walter Neal of the Myron 
made the choice to drop off the Miztech near Vermilion Point before he would make an attempt to Whitefish Bay. So same thing. You can see kind of what you're talking about in the, some of the previous episodes. One of the first moves when you're in trouble here is that you cut the you cut the barge. You get rid of it. That can help you, you know, move a little quicker. It also potentially lets the barge have a chance at survival, right? Like if the mm-hmm. Myron goes down, it's taking that with it. Right. So they drop them off. They deposit them somewhere as safe as they can, you know, make it. And then they try to get to shelter in Whitefish Bay. Yeah, it seems like the safest possible move in a situation that's probably really dangerous for both of them. Right. And like I looked up Vermilion Point on the map. It's really not that sheltered. I don't think I would have been super stoked if I'd been on the Miztech at that point. <laughs> but, uh, you know, 24 hours later, when it all shook out, I guess it worked out pretty mm-hmm. well for them. I'm sure at this point, many of your ears have perked up. This is the same general area as the Edmund Fitzgerald sinking. Stay tuned for some more connections later. Nice. Uh, the Miztech would drop her anchor and she would position herself so that she was able to ride out the storm in relative safety. So, you know, it wasn't a pleasant evening, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, they were able to ride everything out. Mm-hmm. Now bound for the safety of Whitefish Bay, the Myron was accompanied by the large steamer Adriatic. Um, she would come up alongside the Myron, which was obviously struggling, and she's able to provide her some shelter from the waves. Think back to like the Marine Electric episode. This is kind of a similar thing, except they're doing this while moving rather than while being stationary at a point. But, you know, in that classic kind of seafarer tradition, you know, one vessel's coming to the aid of another. Right. Keep that in mind as we keep telling this story. That'll get really interesting later. <laughs> Around this time, uh, the vessels were visible to the Vermilion Lifesaving Station. And this station is led by Captain McGraw. They actually launch a surf boat to go out there. And, you know, if they're needed for rescue, they're, you know, on scene already. Mm -hmm. This is exceptionally courageous by the lifesaving crew. Um, It's a heavy wooden surf boat that they're launching. And, like, all of this is done manually and physically. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no, like assists or anything like this is just manpower getting this done uh, it's also got to be kind of a crazy thing like you're safe on land and you're launching a boat into a terrible november storm like mm-hmm. you have to be pretty resilient to do that it's also a good time to remember the life-saving service motto which is you have to go out but you don't have to come back and I think just with a lot of debate going on uh, today in a lot of the public service areas, uh, it's interesting to see how they viewed it. Is that you know it wasn't an option to stand by; you had to go in there and do it, even at the you know at your right. own risk. You you signed up for this job, and you need to go do this job. Right. The idea that like there is an inherent amount of risk that you have agreed to put yourself in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting how they viewed it. That like it wasn't optional. You you mm-hmm. you had to go do it. When the Myron was within a mile and a half of Whitefish Point, physics finally took over. Water below the deck finally rose to the point where her boilers were extinguished. Uh, She then drove through the trough of a wave and sank rapidly beneath the waters of Lake Superior. Uh, The crew somehow did manage to launch two lifeboats. However, at this point, they were at the mercy of the lake, as well as the cargo of lumber that's being tossed around them. So think about that. Like you're in a lifeboat in these, you know, massive seas and huge waves, but now your cargo is being tossed around too. Like there's just beams and boards being thrown around you. Like how dangerous that is. 
Yeah, that's it's so different from a lot of the times when we talk on the Great Lakes about uh, ships going down because the cargo is, you know, usually stuff like, you know, iron ore or uh, railroad rails um, that, you know, we're going to go straight down. Um, But yeah, having your cargo tossed around like this seems pretty dangerous. Yeah, it is. Um, During the sinking, an air pocket forms in the pilot house, resulting in it being ripped off of the vessel. The most truly remarkable part of this is that Captain Neil was still inside the pilot house when this happened, and he's able to pull himself onto the roof through an open window. He would ultimately be the lone survivor in this story. It's a crazy way to survive a shipwreck. Also, like, Captain goes down with the ship, like, he's trying as hard as he can yeah. to do it, and it just won't happen. I tried. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say, like, at any testimony. He's like, I tried to go down with this thing, and it just wouldn't let me. So. Adriatic had stayed with the Myron during these events, and she would make multiple attempts to rescue men from the water. However, she's forced to retreat after touching the lake bottom and becoming in danger of sinking herself. So, you know, clearly she's making attempts to do this. She's trying, but you have to try that with that. You know, you have to put forth that effort, but you also can't risk your ship becoming a casualty because now you have even more people to rescue. Another nearby vessel, the HP McIntosh, also attempted rescue. Captain Lawrence of the Macintosh watched the Adriatic attempts before taking his steel hold steamer through the wreckage field and coming close enough to toss lines to the Myron survivors. Tragically, though, the crew is so tired and numb by this point. You have to remember how cold this is and how tough these conditions are. They can't grasp the line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're doing everything they can to do this, but it's just too late at this point. It's just with the technology and with like the equipment you have on hand, it's not a salvageable situation. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, Captain Lawrence is forced to pull away due to the massive waves in the shallow water. Next up is the Vermilion Point lifesaving crew. They arrive on scene finally um, after having kind of shadowed this. They had endured an absolutely hellish trip to get where they were, but they're ready to make an attempt to pick up survivors. They're unable to approach the wreck site, though, without smashing the small boat in the surf. And Captain McGraw decides to search downstream from the wreck to search for survivors that have been swept away. So, you know, he can't get close enough to try to rescue anyone. So his next thought is, well, if there's anyone that's getting swept free, like, let's go get them. Like, let's try to save who we can at this Mm -hmm. point. You're sort of balancing that. Um, It's sort of like what you see with firefighters in a fire. Like, you're always going to attempt it. But there might be a spot that you physically can't get to. So you need to go do the next best thing, you know. I will say, um, back to the idea that, you know, the, the crew, the people in the water are just too exhausted to grab onto these these rescue lines that are being thrown to them. It, I know there's several stories we've discussed where, you know, getting there is only half of the, the battle, basically, whereas, you know, the, if the other people can't physically take advantage of it, that's still a problem. And I know we talked about it with, I think, Marine Electric, with the rescue divers. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, just getting the stuff to them isn't enough. You need someone who can get them to safety. It it actually reminds me, I think it was yesterday, the U.S. Coast Guard Great Lakes posted on Twitter. It was just a short little bit about um, basically the dangers and the difficulty of trying to get back into an overturned boat. And it kind mm-hmm. of reminded me of this, saying you, you need to know how to do this before you need to do it. Because, you know, people assume that if they're in, you know, uh, if they're paddling around and their boat turns over, that they're just going to be able to get back in. And that's not true. Like, it's very, very difficult to do. Right. Yeah, it, it is. It's not something you want to do the first time 
like mm-hmm. when you need to know how to do it. Yeah. But ultimately, this life-saving crew, they would search for 20 miles, but they would find no survivors. After completing the search, the crew arrived at Whitefish Point Lighthouse, and the keeper there, Robert Carlson, described them as bleeding and bruised from the beating they had taken in the heavy seas. So, like, these guys had truly given everything they had to do this, and unfortunately, with the technology that they had at their disposal, there just wasn't a way to save anybody. Mm Mm-hmm. Around 20 hours after the sinking, captain of the WC France, Captain Jordan, he is upbound from the Sioux locks. He's aware of the Myron's loss. He's got his crew on alert for survivors and debris in the water. And suddenly somebody sights something. And it's almost something that's like from a storybook, right? Mm-hmm. Suddenly they see a body laying on some wreckage and the body moves. This was the half-dead Captain Neil, who had been previously spoken of. His clothing had frozen to his body, and his hands were so swollen that two rings that were on his ring finger couldn't even be seen. Oof. Yeah, like, he's not in great shape, but he is alive. You know, obviously, they pick him up, they rescue him, they learn that he's from the Myron, and that kind of inspires some hope that maybe there's more survivors out there. Mm-hmm. Um, inspired by that, Coast Guard submarine chaser is launched from Sault Ste. Marie, with a double crew, and they engage in what would prove to be a fruitless search. I just have a question here. Yes. Why does the Coast Guard have a submarine chaser in the Great Lakes? A lot of them were constructed there. Oh, okay. That's the big reason why. I was like, were, were we that worried about Canada? <laughs> a lot of it is that they were constructed in the Great Lakes, okay. and a lot of the training because obviously you can train in a safe environment, like no hostilities. Okay. If you're worried about, you know, that kind of thing, like a lot of it was training and construction. I see. But when you have it sitting there and it's band power, I guess you deploy it. Hmm. So three days after the sinking, a newspaper in Kingston, Ontario said of the ordeal. Little hope is held out, however, that Myron bodies would wash ashore unless lashed to wreckage as the cold waters prevent the forming of gases and it is claimed bodies seldom rise to the surface. It is traditional that Lake Superior seldom gives up her dead. Although it's clearly not the first time the sentiment is shown, it's an early example of a concept that would definitely enter pop culture via Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's just very interesting that it's uh, such a geographically close proximity to where the Edmund Fitzgerald would ultimately sink. Mm -hmm. But also just that idea, that whole Superior never gives up her dead idea, Definitely adds to like that mystique around Lake Superior and the Great Lakes. It it shows you that danger, gives you that dangerous element. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also an interesting instance of, and I I think I'd heard that that explanation before of how just the temperature you know prevents the normal decay processes from happening. Hence, a, you know, an explanation as to why would this happen? This you know, Lake Superior never gives up her dead. It's always interesting when there's that overlapping, there's that intersection between folklore and hard science. Um, Mm -hmm. This is something that people have observed. Why does this happen? Right. And so it's, it's just interesting when you can see that, when you can kind of see the source of some of these, these stories and these cultural elements that exist, um, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out, you know, what is the actual reason for this? So the 17 remaining crewmen would drown or freeze in Whitefish Bay. Um, It's interesting to note, although the newspaper doubts that the crew's body will be recovered, Eventually, all of them are actually recovered. Hmm. Several days after the sinking, a tugboat found one of the Myron's lifeboats 
with an absolutely uh, horrific scene on board. The men were frozen and in some cases fully encased in ice. Mm-hmm. In order to be properly prepared for burial, they had to be placed next to a large fire Ugh. in a funeral home in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, they had to thaw them. They had to thaw them out before they could even prepare them for burial. Mm. It's, uh, I don't know, it just it feels like something that shouldn't be true, right? Also, as we just tell these stories, like, a lot of the, like, all these stories make it seem way too common that these people just find bodies places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must have been a different world in the, <laughs> the earlier part of the 1900s. Five crewmen's bodies were found encased in ice near Whitefish Point in 1919. However, searching was further hampered by uh, weather conditions. The next spring, however, locals would find eight more bodies near Salt Point on Whitefish Bay. These men would be interred at Mission Hill Cemetery in Bay Mills Township, Michigan. Uh, The graves are surrounded by a fence and marked as Sailors of the Steamer Myron. Finally, a large section of the Myron washed ashore on the Canadian side of Whitefish Bay. So even like the Myron itself is like showing up well after the sinking of, you know, Mm -hmm. it's got to be that's pretty haunting. Can you imagine just a large chunk of a vessel like that just showing up on the shore? Very eerie. Yeah. Having the bodies and still just the pieces um, of the ship washing up. It it really shows. I know we've talked about this uh, specifically with like Michigan, but just the currents and, and just the way that things move. It is really interesting to see how these different things wash up in so many different places. Uh-huh, it is. Another thing that's washing up actually is uh, more of her cargo. This lumber would wash up in areas west of Whitefish Point, and the lumber is actually used to construct two small towns. Don't let it go to waste. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there. You might as well use it, right? I'm amazed that this lumber would still be like in usable condition, I guess, after floating around. I'm sure if you dried it out, it would be fine. Not that I'm a lumber expert. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about some of the aftermath here, because actually this is some of the, I guess, more dramatic and interesting parts of this sinking. Mm -hmm. Captain Neal, rather than being grateful, is absolutely indignant with regards to the captains of the Adriatic and the Macintosh. During a hearing with the Steamboat Inspection Service, he is quoted as saying the following. I was clinging to the roof of the pilot house when the Macintosh hailed me shortly after the Myron went from under me. The Macintosh drew alongside me not more than 16 feet away. Although it was dusk, the ship was so close I had no difficulty in making out her name. I talked to the captain and expected he would put out a yawl and pick me up. He did not do so, nor attempt in any way to help me. I will have a boat sent for you, the captain of the Macintosh called and he drew away. I have never seen him since, nor do I ever want to see him by the great hokey pokey. That's what it's all about. Close quote. <laughs> yeah, he's not stoked at the rescue efforts that uh, that were put forth. Um, Straight up not having a good time. Not having a good time. It's really interesting. Like, you don't see that reaction very often. This has um, Empress of Ireland Captain energy here. Yeah. Which is still the best. That's still my favorite thing when he gets rescued and says, you sunk my ship. The Macintosh. Which one was the one that actually rescued him? Was that? That was a completely different vessel later okay. on. He has no animosity towards them. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's good. These are just the two ships that were there on scene as the sinking happened. I see. Okay. 
yeah, he is. He just doesn't feel like they gave forth good effort. But like as the testimony from the other vessels say, like they tossed lines to people, they attempted things, but mm-hmm. with the conditions and the the resources they had, it just wasn't a practical rescue. Mm-hmm. The steamboat inspection service would respond by revoking the license of both the Adriatic and Macintosh's captains for life. Ouch. Yeah. So I don't know if, um, like, I don't know if Captain Neil had some connections or what he, but clearly his testimony was, was taken for the truth, essentially. Um, so this verdict is met with pushback for the maritime community, um, who felt it was a great injustice to punish captains who had put their lives at risk and their, the lives of their crew at risk. It's noted that this verdict may have been overturned, but records don't confirm that anywhere. Um, it may have been one of those things where it was kind of quietly rescinded in the background mm-hmm. to save face for everybody. Today, the wreck of the Myron sits about a mile and a half from Whitefish Bay in about 45 to 50 feet of water. It was discovered by John Steele and Tom Farnquist in 1972, and it would be positively identified in 1982. Many of these artifacts were placed in the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum at Whitefish Point, which is an absolutely beautiful place. If you ever get a chance to go, definitely do it. However, this ran afoul of the Michigan Antiquities Act of 1980. Ah. In 1992, the Michigan Department of Natural Resources and Environment raided the museum, like with guns and everything. I'm curious as to, I, I would like to see what that actually looks like when a museum gets raided. I'm like- assuming like... They just detach like some like Michigan State Police or something to come be like the muscle in that scenario. Something the police are good at handling. Storming museums. Artifacts, <laughs> museums, um, you know, museum curators, <laughs> things like that. Things the police can deal with. Um, they find over 150 artifacts that have been illegally obtained, um, including some from the Myron and the Miztec. Ultimately, a settlement was reached where the artifacts became property of the state of Michigan but were allowed to be loaned for display purposes at the museum. Basically, the state of Michigan says, we want these to belong to us, but we don't have anywhere to care for them or put them, so you can keep them, but they're ours. We just want a little placard in front of it saying property of the state of Michigan. So the wreck itself has suffered from surf and ice damage. It still remains a popular location for divers that uh, in the Whitefish Point underwater preserve. So it's part of a preserve now, but it is still a very popular diving spot. One final interesting piece on this story is the fate of the schooner barge, Miztec. She would survive the storm that sank the Myron. However, she would meet a similar fate on May 13th, 1921, when she was lost off of Vermilion Point, which if you remember correctly, that's where she was left the day of the Myron sinking. Very cool. Another interesting thing, um, she was being towed by a vessel by the name of Zilla, the first mate of the Zilla is actually Captain Neil, who was the captain of the Myron the day of the sinking. Oh. He was, he had been kind of reassigned just as a, he was working as a mate. So I know there could be multiple reasons for that. I know very often it like, there's basically just a more officers than there are positions. Mm -hmm. So like you have, you know, a first mate rated person serving as a second or third mate. And here I'm assuming that might also be the case here. This, this might not be like a demotion necessarily. I think it's mostly because one of the company's vessels is sitting a mile and a half from Whitefish Point underwater. They lost a vessel, but they still have the same number of captains. So someone, mm-hmm. you know, you got to kind of slide it. Yeah. So like more of a manpower thing rather than right. like a demotion per se. So it's also reported that when the wreckage of the Miztec was later found, the pilot house had separated in a similar manner to the Myron's. 
A body was sighted laying on top of it. However, it appeared to be lifeless. As the rescuers approached, it slid off and they were unable to recover it. Mm. So essentially the exact same scene as what we're seeing. It's it's almost too good of a story to be true, and I'm skeptical that it's true. It is, but I guess at the same time, if you look at it, it's if those were both vessels, you know, by the same company, it's possible they were I, I assume built at similar times with similar material by similar people. So presumably they might also come apart the same way. I guess there there are possibly good explanations for that. It does seem too good to be true, honestly. But um, it's a uh, it's just very interesting. It's it's a very interesting story how interconnected these two are, and how you know they almost can't escape each other's orbit. They sink so close to each other. There's so many of the same people involved. Um, it's like we were talking about before the show. It's a interesting coincidence, but also when you think about it logically, they're leaving from the same port. They're going to a lot of the same places. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes sense that these two vessels would sink so close to each other. Yeah, like their their previous history does add an extra element, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, there's a ton of wrecks in Lake Superior. Especially near Whitefish Bay, like you were saying, it's a kind of a natural choke point. Yeah. You have to go to. What I really think here is, I think Lake Superior just really, really wants Captain Neil. Yes, it does appear that it wants Captain Neil. And he keeps on slipping away. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the wreck of the Myron, though. Um, it's one, like I said, I've been wanting to do. I think there's a lot of interesting little stories that go along with it. But um, you know, it's just kind of one of those classic Great Lakes shipwreck tales. It's the stories that originally, when I started this thing, kind of what I wanted to talk about and do. I do enjoy like going off and talking about different things and looking at kind of you know more international issues, but it's always nice to kind of come home and do these Great Lakes episodes. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's a lot closer in your case. It's like thirty or forty five <laughs> minutes away from your door, and in my case, I can drive two hours and be at Lake Erie. So it's just mm-hmm. it feels a little closer to home sometimes doing these, and it's a lot of fun. I, I love it. Yeah, I think with these, it's like you know as we expand out and do different things. I- I think one of the the points that we strive to make is that like there's no two shipwrecks that are exactly the same or have the same story. So even these that you know kind of seem like a sort of cookie cutter Great Lakes story, they've got crazy weird special elements to them um, mm-hmm. that are all you know worth discussing. I also do want to throw in one one point here. I love the ship called the HP Macintosh, and I think that during the computer age, that'd be a very conflicted vessel. That would be. I was going to say that earlier, but it was during the serious part of the episode, so I didn't feel like it warranted <laughs> inclusion. But yeah, I think that's uh, that's what I've got here. Awesome. Well, we appreciate everybody listening. Hope everybody has a great week, and uh, we'll do this again next week. John Bludgett! Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. We love hearing from listeners, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, there's a couple of ways you can do that. We're on Twitter at Beyond underscore Breakers. We're on Instagram at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do also have a Patreon set up for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. Money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show, covers things like web hosting fees, research materials, the occasional hardware upgrade to keep the show sounding as good as possible. We appreciate all of the support in any way it comes. The simplest way to support the show is just to listen and share it with your friends. Other ways to support the show include leaving ratings and reviews. Ratings and reviews really help us 
They help the show stay visible. They help more people find the show and they make us feel good. So any of those ways you can support the show is greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care.